morning. It's good to see all of you here. It's good to be with you online this morning. And I am overwhelmed with the need to say, good morning, my name is Steve, and I am not the pastor here at Kern. Now let's bow our heads and uh, open with worship, please. Heavenly Father, we ask for an extra measure of your spirit this morning to come among us, help us to uh, praise, worship in a way that gives you glory and pleases you, that our fellowship might be its very brightest and connectional. Father, we hurt for those in our community that struggle in all kinds of ways, and in particular, we lift those in Mississippi this morning that have struggled so severely with tornadoes in the past day or two. Father, your hand is needed there, and when it can be us that helps, inspire us to do so. Come among us this morning. Help us to realize that resurrection power that you offer us. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Before we begin the message time, I'd like to invite you into a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads, please. Heavenly Father, we come to that time in our worship that we listen in particular for a word from you. But each of us knows that that cannot happen unless your Spirit moves among us. And so I pray in this time that you would be in my thoughts and words and that you would be in the minds and hearts of those who would hear so that each of us might discern that unique thing that you have for us today. Hide each of us in the shadow of the cross so that only... Your glory is revealed, and it's in Jesus' name I ask. Amen. A couple of Saturdays ago, I had one of those things that we all dread. It was a two-funeral day. The first of those events was the celebration of life service for the father of one of my eldest son's best friends growing up here in town. It seems that cancer and its complications had taken him from this world too soon, two years and some after initial diagnosis. The second of those services was the funeral mass for my very first and perhaps best friend. A relationship begun, I'd say, at uh, age six, age seven, and continuing today. It seems that a asymptomatic but viciously aggressive pancreatic cancer was detected when he had gone to the doctor expecting a flu diagnosis, and last rites were performed within a few days. Even then, a brain bleed and a stroke killed him before the cancer could. Gone too soon. I tell you that because I wanted to frame for you my state of mind when I sat down at my desk to study this week's scripture for the message you're about to hear. And I have to say, I don't tell you for the purpose of some pity party, I tell you because I was in that place where almost all of us spend some time now and then. I was angry with death. 
I was just tired of it. And we get that way sometimes, I think. Our faith, our relationships, all those things are, are, are strong and they help us, but there are times when it's just, I've had enough. And so, I think events like that, two funeral days, events like that remind us that our lives are filled with uncertainty and that all sorts of things are coming that we can't see. And I want us to think about tough choices that come up, grief, fear, anger, all of these things that we know are on the railroad tracks in front of us, but sometimes we don't see coming. Secular thought tends to invoke humor and denial to help us cope with that sort of thing. If it's possible to have a favorite sort of thought along that lines, I will say that my favorite comes from the writer Woody Allen. He was quoted some years ago as saying, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. And we tend to smile at that sort of thought because of the very simple but ironic truth it presents. Yes? But whether we see it coming or not, for family, for friends, for ourselves, confrontations with death are coming. And we don't know how to cope sometimes. We just get to the end of that rope, I think. At least at times. You can go to the bookstore, you can go online and find a gazillion, that's a big number, a gazillion number of books and self-help things about coping. But when I sat down at my desk a couple of weeks ago, the thing that was in my mind was, what does the New Testament say about coping with death? And so on this fifth Sunday of Lent, deep in the Christian season of penitence and discipline, our lectionary gospel reading from John today is a multi-pronged confrontation with death. And to my eyes, it's the only one of its kind in all of the New Testament. So there's a lot to unpack in this story that I think most of you know. I'm going to try and unpack it, but I'm going to do it in a different way than I'm used to. Many of you who are used to me in this pinch-hitting situation Wish I'd just hold still sometimes. I know I'm all over the place. That is how I am. But I will be strangely tethered to the podium this morning because there's a very long Scripture reading and I'm going to do it a little bit at a time. I'm going to read some and offer a thought or two about it and read some and offer a thought or two. And what I want to do is build a story about a confrontation with death. I want you to let yourselves into the story if you can do it. So if you want to follow along, either here with your Bibles or your phones or what have you, online at home. Uh, words will be on the screen here. The Gospel text today is from John, chapter 11. And I will begin in the first verse. And we will read a big hunk of chapter 11 and even the first few verses of chapter 12. So, I have up here in the glory of technology, more font 20, so I can read it in limited light without my glasses. But let's begin. 
Let's start into that story just a little bit. This is John chapter 11, beginning in the first verse. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. I think John's gospel can be extraordinarily eloquent sometimes. But this chapter begins with two extraordinarily clunky sentences, I think. It seems that John, or perhaps even a later proxy, wants to leave no doubt at all who this story is about. He describes a very specific Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, all of the town of Bethany, well known to everybody at that time, and a home they live together where Jesus visits often. He wants you to know that for a reason. The oral tradition of this gospel began spreading immediately after the events. But scholars tell us that the written versions of this didn't come around until 25 or 30 years later. So John wants to know, for all those generations that will come shortly thereafter, this is who I'm talking about. If you want the story, if you want witnesses to confirm details or ask questions, this is where you need to go. This is who you need to ask. I'm not hiding that. This is right in front of you. Here it is. Now, I'll add to that for you that this is the same Mary and Martha that are mentioned in Luke's Gospel. The sisters argue amongst themselves about whether it's more important to deal with hospitality expectations or to sit at the feet of Jesus while He teaches among the women of the court. Also, this text tells us, I just read sentence 2 there, it was that Mary. This event, the anointing of Jesus, hasn't happened yet in John's chronology. It happens at the, beginning, at the end of our reading this morning. But it's so important to what John wants you to get from this text that we get a heads up before it even starts in this story. So remember that the story ends with Mary anointing Jesus. Let's continue reading. I'm moving on to verse 3 now. Keep your finger in your place if you're following along because I'm going to jump back and forth a lot. Therefore, the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, He whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So our story begins in earnest here and the lives of the sisters confront uncertainty. They're worried about their brother and rightfully so. They don't know what to do. They have very little control. But what they do know how to do, curiously, is they know enough about Jesus and His whereabouts to get a message to Him. The story in other places tells us that Jesus is about a walk of two days away right now. And they can get a message to him. And whether they understand it this way or not, they are offering among the first of the intercessory prayers described in the New Testament. This message, this prayer that gets to Jesus. And curiously, the evangelist John only wants to record one detail for all time. He's writing this gospel that will read, be read by zillions of people. And he chooses to write one thing down about what's in this message. And it's just this. 
Lord, he whom you love is sick. There is no detail there about the name of the patient, nor where you might find that patient. There's no detail there about the illness that's involved or what healer might have been consulted. Nothing at all in that soap opera of information that you might expect, except, Lord, he whom you love is sick. Why would John think that's the only piece of information from this, no doubt, very busy message that comes to Jesus? He's surrounded by disciples and maybe some others, and they all hear it. But this is the detail John chooses to offer. And in his theology, I'm going to suggest to you that it's because it's the only detail that matters in this prayer. The prayer that's lifted here only calls out two things. The title of Jesus, Lord, and His nature, love. It does not involve any character or merit of Lazarus, nor any want of desire or the, of the sisters. Lord, He whom you love is sick. That's it. And so this intercession stirs a response in Jesus. But it's not the one you might expect when you start reading the story. So he says to those disciples around him, some of the followers maybe, no matter what your eyes may see, no matter what your sensibilities may suggest to you, this illness will not end in death of Lazarus. Instead, it will, it will create something. It will begin something. Something that glorifies God. So the question for those disciples, the question for these disciples here, is can you be satisfied, truly satisfied, if the answer to the prayer is God being glorified? That's a little tricky for us. So, moving along in our story, verse 5 now. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going to go there again? At this point, the story adds a complication. Now, life confronts tough choices. Tough choices for the sisters. Surely, they have problems that they don't know how to solve. But in this particular case, the tough choice is for Jesus and the disciples. See, Lazarus is in Bethany. That's about two miles from the temple in Jerusalem. For those who like physical touchy-feely connections to that. Two miles from here is about Food City. Okay, so it's really close. The paragraph of John's Gospel that immediately precedes what we're reading now, the scribes and Pharisees had just ran Jesus out of Solomon's Hall in the temple for preaching there. And according to John, one of the phrases he used was, the Father and I are one. And because he said that, the scribes and Pharisees thought him to be a heretic. And so they threatened to stone him. They physically ran him out of the temple. Jesus escaped, we know that. It wasn't his time yet. But he escaped. And so, 
what's happening here for John telling us is that there is a tough choice here. At face value, the disciples are saying, wait a minute, they just tried to stone you there. Why would you go back there and face that? Surely you and the movement you are creating are more important than the well-being of this one fellow in Bethany. But the boundary between tough choices and faith and action surely is thinnest when the stakes are highest. But for Jesus, there is no higher stake than the kingdom. So He goes, and He goes to glorify God. So, the charge happens, and that's, here we go. Tough choices. So let's keep reading. Verse 14 now. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. The story continues to evolve now. Now life confronts grief. John wants us to know, in his telling here, that Mary and Martha are well thought of in the family of Jews in the town of Bethany. There's lots and lots of people there mourning with her. And the fact that they are described as Jews here is really important to John in several ways, at least in my view. Recognized for John's agenda, it's important that all these witnesses are present when Jesus arrives four days late. There needs to be lots of people there who see that, who know that. And they are described as Jews, not disciples, not Christians, not followers, not some other word, because John wants you to know that in the family of the Jews here, not everyone is disposed to be enamored with this Jesus. Remember, he just got ran out of the temple. So, there's several things going on here all at once. These Jews, further, are more than just women. They are men of the town as well. So, it's the word of men, the witnesses of men, Jewish men, that see what's about to happen here. And it's, it's how this works. That, that Jesus appears, and it appears late. But also, for the Jewish family, remember that this grief that the sisters are facing, this grief that's in front of them, their brother is dead, there's some grief among some of the Jews because Jesus is present. Remember that. So, moving along. Verse 20 now. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met Him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Once again, more type A Martha. Her energy, her need to be doing, her busyness. She's up and she's in action. She goes and finds Jesus. Mary is more introspective. She's sitting quietly. She's thinking, 
The mourners are around her doing whatever the mourners do in that sense. And it is genuine, certainly, but it is also part of their culture to mourn in that way. But Jesus meets with both these sisters in just a minute, both their emotions, both the ways they bring themselves to the situation. Jesus wants all of that. That's part of the story here. Verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. The story continues now, and now life confronts death. Martha, do you believe your brother will rise again? That question is for all of us. Do you believe this? I think the answer that Martha offers is very telling. Listen carefully to what she says. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. And Jesus doesn't say, good job, you got it right. You go, girl. And he doesn't even say, well, I wish you sounded a little less disappointed. What he says is, I am the resurrection and the life. And I find that very challenging for all of us. For me, based on the miracle that he's just about to perform, to confirm this thought, perhaps, he makes a most interesting suggestion about the resurrection for the sisters and for us. I think he's saying that the resurrection isn't relegated to this isolated event sometime in the future, this indiscreet future that we don't understand. It's an identity in the here and now based only on relationship with Jesus. And that doesn't mean there will never be uncertainty, tough choices, grief, fear, and death. What it means is if you'll stay with Him, the result will be better than you can imagine. And I think that's really critical to this story. I want to intentionally digress for just a minute. I'm going to reread verse 25 with my emphasis, not necessarily John's emphasis. But I want you to hear it in a little different way, only because I think it sounds interesting that way. I'm not saying that the way we read it just a second ago, I am the resurrection and the life, is incorrect. I think that's true. I think that's what Jesus said. But I'm going to change the emphasis just a little bit. No word changes, just emphasis. What if I read it like this? I am the resurrection and the life. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and he had the tablets, and he's about to return to the people with these instructions for living, Moses asked God, Whom shall I say sent me? 
in effect, asking God His name. Do you remember what God said? This is in Exodus chapter 14. God told Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am sent me. Just think about it that way. I think that's interesting. So, inspired by this connection with Jesus, Martha finds the strength to go and tell her sister. And she tells Mary, the master's waiting for you. You should go see him. So she takes herself away from the people she's mourning with and she goes to see Jesus. And she gets there and, and John reports she gives the exact same phrase that her sister did. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's the front line of grief, right? It's the language of lost opportunity. It's the language of defeat. If you had been here. And Jesus gets frustrated in His humanity. Let's hear what He has to say. Verse 33 now. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, He groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. In His humanity, Jesus groans because the sisters are trying so hard to be faithful, but what they do is by rote and it is mechanical. Jesus groans because the eternal life they're seeking that they hope for so hard is not over there. It's right here in front of them. And He groans because that lack of trust in God that was present in the very beginning in Genesis is still happening. So Jesus does what He does. He teaches. And Lazarus is the life lesson. Pun intended. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Further confirmation of the division among people who Jesus could be, should be. Further confirmation that human expectations rarely align with divine purpose. Verse 38, Then Jesus, again groaning in Himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against the opening. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. That's not intended for comic relief. That's to take away the power of the magicians of the time and the elaborate ruse that it could have been. You can't fake the smell of death. And there were lots and lots of witnesses to it. Everybody knew it when the tomb was opened. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Close your eyes for just a second and think what you see on the face of Jesus when this happens. Is He still crying? Is His jaw clenched in fierce determination? Is He grinning like somebody just about to expose the surprise of a lifetime? 
What you see while your eyes are closed may tell you something about your relationship with Jesus. Maybe you can see all of those things or something else. Verse 41. We're almost home now. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Now, the author of life confronts death. And it's no contest. A prayer of praise and expectation in the beginning, before anything happens. Maybe the prayer is really the miracle here. So Mary sees now. She hears this voice call Lazarus from the grave. Perhaps this voice, this booming voice, foreshadows the trumpet call at the eschaton, the end of all time. But remember that that voice is the very same voice that called creation into being. Let there be light. And there was light. And so Mary sees, she sees this new thing that John's trying to describe, this new thing that's happening that glorifies God and this new thing has a name and it's called hope. It's called a new beginning. And, and she's overwhelmed with the need to worship. And so when Jesus raises Lazarus, now the stakes change for everybody, especially for Jesus. Previously, the scribes and Pharisees had tried to discredit Jesus, to discourage Jesus, to shoo Him away somewhere else to spout His nonsense. But now, the text says, they're ready to kill Him. And so, it intensifies. And now we're ready to hear the anointing at Bethany. This is the first few verses in chapter 8. Chapter 12, sorry. Excuse me. The first eight verses therein. Then, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom He had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at table with Jesus. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray Jesus, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This Judas said, not that he cared so much for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Right, I'm going to wrap up here now. Band, if you guys would like to start back this way. In this experience of Jesus for Mary, in this confrontation of death, Mary has been blessed to see some very special things. She sees the concern and care Jesus has for human love. He wept. 
she sees his dedication to our purpose and that he wants to hold us so close. In the, in the language of the Gospels, Jesus says he wants to herd us under his wing like a mother hen does her brood of chicks. She sees his conviction to what shall be. Your brother shall live again and his power to make it so. She sees his devotion to the cause, to the purpose. Glorify God first and foremost among any things against all outcomes. And the result will be more than uncertain, more than unsatisfactory. It will be in the here and in the now. And she sees his provision to make it so. The things he does all the way to the cross. And so on that Easter morning, Mary, who has been worshiping so hard, she's used a king's ransom of oil to anoint her Lord, her hope. She comes to the tomb on that Easter morning, and it's first light, and it's quiet. And she has the opportunity to confront uncertainty, tough choices, fear, grief, anxiety, death. But at the tomb, she sees God's verdict on the life of Jesus. God's decree on new beginnings. Because now, in the end of the story, her life confronts His death. For her, and for us, a blessed Easter. Peace be among you. Jesus himself said that Mary's act of worship, the anointing with oil, will be remembered as long as the good news of the Gospels is preached. And so in this time of Lent, I would invite you into your own time of reflection, to consider your own praise and worship, to confront your own death and His, but do it together. Now, if you would lift your eyes and receive the benediction. And now may the most excellent grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit go with each of you now and always and give you peace. And all God's children said, Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out to Kern Memorial United Methodist Church or see entire services, you can visit our YouTube channel, Kern Memorial United Methodist Church, and remember to like and subscribe for updates. You can also visit us on our Facebook page at Kern Memorial United Methodist Church. Thanks and have a blessed day.